The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is this one called? The future of what? Future generations. The future of future generations. And it's episode... Five. Five. You two are great. We should keep that in. We should keep that in. <laughs> <laughs> where, where everybody, where we pull back the veil and everybody gets to hear that John goes, what is this one about? Who is yeah. it? What number are we? <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to the podcast whose name you know with the people you know. If it were up to me, you'd be hearing a slick and routine introduction to the podcast, but Mark and Ed have insisted this week that we begin the podcast with the conversation that I thought we were having off air uh, before the podcast began. So, a crude start, an embarrassing start for me. <laughs> I just... I, do you know, I'm a very busy guy, and I was about to ask you how you were, because last week, I know your name is Mark something, and the last time we spoke, you were very upset um, because you couldn't get the right shampoo, or one of your prog albums that you bought was under 48 hours long, and you didn't consider it good value for money, and I was all caring, and I asked if you were better, and now you knife me at the beginning of, at the, beginning of the show. That, that's not true. I don't have a head for numbers, and we've recorded a, a lot of interviews, and sometimes I forget what day it is. I genuinely think now, if you told me it was 2013, I wouldn't question it. I just believe you. This is like Dallas, isn't it? We've got Bobby Ewing's just come out of the shower, and we're now back in 2013. It would be if I'd had a shower today. I'd love to say it was to save the environment, but life can just sod off sometimes, can't it? Just also shows how old you are, Ed, because that, I think, was a big thing in about 1994, wasn't it? That Bobby Ewing thing? Oh, well, yeah. I am. I'm slightly, slightly younger than you. <laughs> the reference point went from Dallas. Then it felt like to me it cut straight to Lost, which was the next big, like, oh, can you believe that was the ending? And then it was The Sopranos, wasn't it? And everyone was doing, oh, it should just like cut to black like The Sopranos. And now I guess it's Squid Game is the thing, is it? Have you oh. seen Squid Game? That's That could be our trivial question this week. No. Have you seen Squid Game, you two? No, no. no. Not into so, that kind of thing? Don't have time for telly. We've got children. I got COVID and I watched it all in a day. Because um, <laughs> I thought, I can't go near my family in case I infect them. I don't want to watch happy telly. So I just watch people in a worse situation than me where you think, well, at least I'm not going to get shot on the landing. Isn't reality a bit like Squid Game now, though? I mean, like yes. the kind of, you know, Omicron, as the name of a new variant of COVID, sounds like the most darkest sci-fi dystopia you could possibly imagine. The, you know, I mean, Delta variant we could sort of handle, but Omicron, it's coming for you. 
Yeah, yeah, and you couldn't have it the other way where you call it like Keith and it just didn't sound bad. <laughs> yeah, the Keith variant. Keith's coming. <laughs> I think call, I think calling it like, you know, the Tracy or the, you know, or the Jeff or whatever, the people would there'd be, there'd be a lot less panic in the world if if we named terrifying things with benign names. I think we're onto something here. Maybe we could rename climate change as like whoopsie weather. <laughs> Do you think? That'll really galvanise people. Yeah, there's there's going to be a lot of whoopsie weather if you guys don't sort your business out. Have you been Storm Arwind? We've had a little bit of snow, um, which has been fine. And as a result, we have put our Christmas tree up because I thought, do you know what? You've got a carpe diem and you've got to get that tree up while there's snow outside because it feels more festive. Right, even though it's November. I don't care. It's 2013 in our house. You just had it up for the photo shoot for promoting the Meet the Richardsons Christmas special. Didn't you? <laughs> there is no Meet the Richardsons Christmas special this year due to uh, the threat of legal action from the makers of Christmas. But uh, keep your eyes peeled for more Meet the Richardsons, and I appreciate the plug, Ed. And can I Thank say you. now, I've always enjoyed your poetry. Uh, <laughs> don't lie. Why would you lie like that? That's the only way to grease the. I mean, no, I do enjoy his poetry. Really? Um, so I can tell you're sounding better, Mark. You you sound better than last week. You sound happier. The old barbs are out again. You're being rude to me. That's how I know you love me. Hang on. I was rude to you last week. I was very rude to you last week. And I, uh, so I don't think I'm, I'm rude to you whether I'm happy or sad. But isn't it true, true though, that, that if you are if you are British, as we all are, that actually you can only really be horrible to the people that you like and you're absolutely actually very polite to people yes. that you're a little bit dis- distrustful of. So the fact, the ruder I am to you, it just it expresses my deep my deep love for you, John. Absolutely. I've been very, you very useless polite. fucking... <laughs> um, speaking of Christmas trees, I will... Um, and, and do keep your uh, trivial questions for Mark and Ed coming in because the, the podcasts are fascinating. And I had, still haven't actually told you um, that it's it's episode five and it's the future of future generations, which I'm going to do, even though it's already been done for me. Um, a fascinating interview coming up with Jane Davidson. But the trivial question is a chance to tease out some other facts about Mark and Ed. We know they don't watch Squid Game. Christmas trees, bit of a ding dong with Lucy this week. She wants a real Christmas tree. I said, absolutely not. We've already got a, a, a fake tree. And I said, it's it's madness to cut down a tree. And she then sent me a link to an article saying it's not actually, and it can be better for the environment. But I just don't believe that. What What is the truth about Christmas trees? You can't ha- you can't handle the, the truth. truth. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is increasingly true about a number of topics. Oh my God. It's that kind of seasonal annual variation, isn't it? It's like we have to have the endless discussion about whether you should have a tree in a pot that you bring in doors and then totally stress out for three weeks by keeping it in a warm living room. Uh, and it probably dies anyway versus like, you know, some sustainably forested, like real live version versus the plastic tree that will last for all eternity, whether it's in your loft or in a landfill. And uh, we go, we go round and round the houses on it every oh, year. God, already you've answered the question and now I know the answer is don't have a tree. What a miserable response that is! No, it's not. You can have a you can have the plastic tree and hand it down to Elsie for future generations to enjoy, which is the theme of today's podcast. Uh, as with all these things, uh, John, it depends, and actually, this brings us on to the the subject of whether planting trees is good or not for taking down carbon from the atmosphere. And uh, if you plant them in a place where they're not likely to burn down, and then when uh, you chop them down, you turn them into something where the carbon stays locked up, say a chair or a building, or you uh, turn it all into biochar and stick it in the soil, then then yes, it's a good thing. So it, it, getting the tree itself 
is not necessarily a good thing. It depends where it's come from, how it's been forested, and then what happens to it at the end. So um, Lucy is is partly right, but she would have some strong facts around the one she actually wants to buy if she wants to convince you of its uh, climate credentials. So if it's all the same to you, uh, she doesn't listen to this podcast, I'm going to sort of conflate your answer to I'm right. That's what I broadly <laughs> heard there. Yeah? Uh, no. Okay, fine. I'm hearing yes. So... It, so <laughs> No, this is. I mean, this is very similar to a lot of the consultancy that we do, isn't it, Ed? Like uh, somebody comes in with a preordained opinion of what's what's good and how wonderful they are, and they tell us that we tell them that it's not necessarily the case and it's a bit more complicated than that, and then they try and say, "Well, I'll I'll, I'll do what I want anyway. Here's your money, so we don't yeah. get pay, so we don't get paid for this." And we just oh, here uh, we, we go, and then now we just uh, money, and then we just stick around until they finally see the truth. So, uh, so no, you can't say that. You can't you can't go up against the future norts and then try and blather us with your own you know ego even if you are a massive star. Look, I'll meet you in the middle and I'll tell her the second bit where you said you'd better come home with some pretty serious facts. I liked that. That's the sort of tone that I operate with around the house anyway. <laughs> if you're going to load the dishwasher like that, you better come up with some pretty serious evidence based material about why that is the right place to put the colander because I don't think it is. Okay, and if Lucy wants to email me, I can send her some good links for proper Christmas tree sustainability stuff. Oh, I tell you what, here's an exciting runner uh, for the end of this series. So we always throw out the uh, email address for listeners. But here's one. Lucy, my wife, if you're listening, email the show now. Uh, and here are the details of where you can do so. Hello at johnandthefuturenorts.com. There you go. So now we are, we're just heading into December. It's episode five. There's no way any of our partners listen to the show now. We're just series three. They'd listen to, I mean, I think, Ed, I think Ed's lost two or three in the, in the time since we've been doing the show. <laughs> I've lost one and I currently don't have one. So if anyone's out there. Oh, does oh, that, oh we know is... what you want for Christmas. I tell you what, you've had a wonderful show, Ed. You've really, you've you've plugged me the Richardsons and then you've had a little shout out for a little bit of romance there. So, um, <laughs> well, there you go. It's got a beta dating app, hasn't it? I mean, annoyingly, I just said uh, to my wife, email if you're listening. So now she's going to email and probably put you an offer in, Ed, um, given what you sound better than I do. I would argue that your partners probably, given that you are the intelligent ones on this podcast, hear a lot of this information and your family members hear the information because it's what you do for a living. I don't have these conversations with Lucy because I, I don't remember a lot of the facts. As you heard earlier, I don't really know what day it is, what episode <laughs> it is, or what we're talking about. So, you know, there's a limit to it. She's got no excuse for not listening. And I'll tell you now, if I don't receive an email from Lucy on this show's email by New Year, I will be having some serious chat. Now, we're here to discuss the future of future generations. You've sort of alluded to everything already pertains to that. But today's chat is a fascinating insight into the fact that we don't make that clear, do we? And, uh, and often politically and with a lot of legislation, we don't tie down the fact that everything we do should be about protecting things for the generations yet to come. So I think the, the problem is that um, we tend to uh, legislate for what we know and we know what's happened in the past and we kind of know where we are now and we tend to legislate for things that we find emotionally or financially convenient. And actually, we don't really understand the future because we're not there and therefore it's very hard to legislate for the people who are going to be there because we don't know them. And as we all know, human beings, they don't know other people. They don't give a fuck about them. So even your own descendants, strangely, at an emotional level, I think you probably don't care about because you've never met them and never bought your pint. 
and I think that's part of the problem. Oh, that cut deep. So that felt like it was really for me. That <laughs> <laughs> it's all coded. It's all coded. This episode. Yes. In fact, the, when you think about it, the whole the whole show, every episode is just basically a coded attack on John. <laughs> It does feel like it, doesn't it? And this is the show this show where we reveal that my wife doesn't take any interest in my work. <laughs> um, it might come in during this interview. The interview is coming up with Jane. You never know. She might she might get straight back in touch and there might be an email by the end. Um, we do have a fantastic email uh, from a, a listener, Luke, coming up at the end, which we will fit into the confessional booth. Uh, we'll see you on the other side. So how to introduce Jane Davidson. So I I first met Jane in the early noughties uh, when she was Minister for Environment and Sustainability in the Welsh Government. And I vividly recall her straight-talking style, her forthright approach and the wry twinkle in the eye. Uh, She was a Welsh minister for over a decade and her achievements were humble in one sense, but rather draw-dropping in another. She did, as the colloquial saying goes, get shit done. So while every other politician was dithering, uh, she introduced the first plastic bag charge in the UK. Uh, Her recycling initiatives and incentives took Wales to second best in Europe and third best in the world. Um, And unlike many other high-profile environmental voices, Jane literally walks her talk. And she led and coordinated the creation of the Wales Coast Path, 870 miles of glorious exertion on the edge, which is not a bad metaphor for her career. Uh, She launched a Climate Change Commission for Wales uh, and the post of Sustainable Futures Commissioner, which is currently held by the awesome Sophie Howe. Uh, And that was all inspired by what Jane herself describes as the legislative bomb she left as her legacy uh, the well-being of future generations act which makes sustainability the central organizing principle of welsh government which i'm sure we will get into today uh, she's the author of future gen lessons from a small country uh, which uh, nikhil seth the un assistant secretary general described as what wales is doing today the world will do tomorrow she's also pro vice chancellor emeritus at my old alma mater the university of wales trinity st david she is a committed low carbon liver uh, a cyclist a homemade cider aficionado uh, and jane is the perfect spokesperson to encourage us all to kutch the world kutch being welsh for hug or cuddle uh, so there denmark there's more to life than just hygge. um so welcome to the podcast jane oh thank you so much and that's the best introduction i think i've ever had well, I'm trying to raise the bar here. Everyone says that now. I've now got to kind of keep this up because every guest says that's the best intro I've ever had. So the pressure is now on me to keep on keep the quality up. I think we should get you some really awful guests, Ed. Okay, so now we have Pol Pot. And uh, I first met Pol Pot back in my student days. You know, I just love to see you introduce like, and now Nigel Farage. Oh, God. Yeah, that's my fever dream, I think. Yeah. So, Jane, you know the formula for the podcast that we like to dive in here. Uh, and so the first question we like to ask is sort of how effed are we? So on a scale of one to ten, uh, and this is a model that Mark and I have used for many years, and, and we found out that the activist John Jordan also uses it. So uh, where one is Star Trek, uh, a sort of techno-utopian future, and ten is Mad Max dystopia, where would you say we are on a scale of one to ten? I, I almost think that we're at eleven. At the moment, I I think we're off the Mad Max scale. And I think we're off the Mad Max scale because we know what we're doing and we've known what we've been doing globally for such a long time that we've almost accustomed people to the idea that there is this 
awful thing out there in the context of the changing climate and it is going to produce wildfires and they could be somewhere near you and if you if you don't have the wildfires you will have the drought your your home could drop off a cliff um, we've got sea level rise uh, those lovely polar bears are going to have nowhere to live when all the uh, ice melts and we have all these things all of which are partly true and partly visible in our lives and therefore it does feel as though we are in the worst dystopian horror but they're all piecemeal bits and therefore when you're trying to think about where we really are there is all that science that tells us there is still time to take action and that is the really important thing to hang on to i think so this is like the kind of the spinal tap future where we've turned it up to 11. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this kind of talks to, I think, the, the quality and the tone of, of current political discourse, which is it seems much more like theatre than actual policymaking at the moment, or that's how it appears. As somebody who's kind of worked in you know the heart of government and at a policy level, what is your... Uh, experience of actually getting policy done against that theatre that uh, seems to be the prevalent metaphor? I think that the, the very important element from this is whether or not the serious work that I'm sure the government is doing behind the scenes is enough in the context of a theatrical prime minister mm. who has not done that previous engagement. And mm. that is going to be the big question. Um, and it's not helped in many ways by the fact that this is not natural territory for the governing party of the United Kingdom. Um, in the whole of the um, you know, individual approach, the freedoms approach, all of these issues, COVID has tested that, that government almost to the limits. And just listening uh, this morning to Sajid Javed, not even prepared to say to his cabinet colleagues that although there is advice on mask wearing, they should undertake that mm. in the House of Commons. We have a real dislocation between messages and what needs to be delivered. It's like they can't choke the words out, isn't it? It's like yeah. you know, they really can't bring themselves to say it because of some deep-seated ideological view. And do you, I mean, do you do you get the sense that they actually feel that responsibility that you know you describe um, in the book as you know the responsibility for potentially ruining the lives of future generations? Do you think they feel that, or are they just completely disconnected and oblivious to it? Well, I think I think that um, it, it's fair to say that. Uh, every every government, every parliament operates in a political bubble. And we actually use the, those words, don't we, to describe mm. it. There's a Westminster bubble, there's a Cardiff bubble, there's an Edinburgh bubble. Um, and they, they, are, they, they hold a lot of truth, which is that the daily interactions of politics, the daily mm. interactions are, what is your individual red line? What is your constituency's red line? What is your party's red line? And these flows take up everybody's energy. And therefore, we've got a situation where politics, um, uh, I, I think particularly in the UK, but I mean, I think it's true of probably all countries in the world, becomes increasingly short term, the more of a crisis you have. So it's almost as though you want to think about future generations, but you can't give yourself the political space. 
And I've certainly found in most of my career in politics, as somebody who wanted to advocate for future generations in all policy making, which is what the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act does, that I'd often be told both by political colleagues and by, by officials um, in the Welsh government, well, yes, that's great, but I haven't got time for it now. <laughs> and, and it's this notion that we haven't got time now to look after future generations. And it's a really, really important thing to understand about politics because, you know, it is why Wales is the first country in the world to have legislation uh, to look after the interests of future generations. And a lot of people have said to me um, that, you know, when I talk about lessons from a small country, they point out somewhat cynically, well, yes, lessons from a small country that doesn't have full legislative powers over everything in its country. Hmm. And therefore, the implication is there's a you know, there's more space in Wales to have conversations <laughs> about future generations. But I think there is a sort of notion whereby you you have to take these things into account to understand, and then you need to reject them as a way of working, because the idea, and we saw it so much during COVID, where governments could literally say something in the morning, or the UK government did this on a number of occasions, what it said in the morning would have changed by lunchtime <laughs> and then be something else by the evening. And, you know, politics was so short-term as to bring itself into ridicule. Mm. But what COVID has given us, of course, is the opportunity to do things very, very quickly when you know what you want to do. And uh, so let me ask a question about that, that short-termism, because I, I think it, some people argue that's, that's kind of human nature. Like there isn't uh, any uh, healthcare uh, expert who won't tell you that basically, you know, if you want to live a, a long and healthy life, then you should have treated yourself better when you were younger. <laughs> you know, or lots of old people go, oh, I wish I hadn't drunk so much or, I, or I'd exercise more, you know, or I got into a decent lifestyle. In that even for ourselves, you know, we would rather have a can of lager and a pizza now than go to the gym um, because we kind of imagine our future selves to be somehow discounted in our appreciation. They're kind of distant from us. And is that sort of happening at a systemic level with, you know, we kind of imagine in abstract these children that are yet to come, but we don't know them, so we don't care about them. I think that that is absolutely right. But I, I don't think it's as much as we don't care about them. If we if we thought about them, we'd care about them. We just don't think about them at all. But I think your point of um, about discounting is absolutely fundamental. I mean, one of the things that I found so odd in 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 my life as a minister, and I've always I've always looked for external advice for everything I've done as a minister. So I've always had groups of academics and others helping me navigate the territory. So there's a really strong evidence base to it, um, and then it's how far can I take that evidence base politically in my passion for acting on the interests of future generations. And what is what, what's very interesting at the moment as well is. Future generations are a thing at the moment. You know, I mean, Roman Kusnarik has done enormous, um, uh, kind of, of enormous benefit to us by publishing his book on the good ancestor. Yeah. And, you know, when I was doing this stuff back in 1999, <laughs> and there was no, no interest whatsoever. Mm. And I just think that the fact that future generations are now a thing is actually really, really important in this debate because the youngest person, you know, the youngest person who's just born, I'm trying to make it tangible for people, 
but, you know, a newborn baby in your family who you love to bits from the moment that they come into the world, you know, that baby could live 100 years. And we are in danger now of ensuring that most of that life will be hard. You know, I can't understand when I, you know, when I talk to actuaries hmm. whose job is <laughs> to to look at issues around morbidity and mortality. When I talk to accountants, when I talk to investors, you know, where climate change is still an optional in some investment houses as a KPI, how can we be in a situation where all our finance systems are predicated on jam today um, rather than jam? tomorrow. Yes, it's in the human psyche, but yes, it is the most fundamental thing we have to change. Yeah, but maybe that's but maybe this is partly um the Prime Minister's problem. He doesn't quite know which of the youngest people in his life he's supposed to hold in his head. <laughs> <laughs> well any of them would be a good start. Yeah, well, any of them would be a good start. I mean I mean hearing you describing that, Jane, it's like it reminds me when I when I read the first couple of chapters of your book, when you talk about your own journey, you know, and your own sort of Rio nineteen ninety two Earth Summit mm-hmm. epiphany as Agenda Twenty One Woman, um, you know, and referencing pioneering systems thinker Donella Meadows and the Club of Rome's limits to growth, which was in 1972, then, and that was the year I was born. And I was reminded and then struck by just how long everything takes. You know, it's nearly 50 years since that first seismic warning shot across the bows. And why has it been such a sort of tortuous process of awakening to, let alone enacting change? Well, I think if we, if I can actually um, do this with reference to Donella Meadows, I mean, yes, reading reading Limits to Growth was an absolute epiphany, and in fact, I came I came um, to Donella Meadows via her second book, um, Limits to Growth: The Thirty Year Update, mm. and which was um, uh, in two thousand and two. And the the thing about her was that. Um, when she first published Limits to Growth in the 1970s, it was basically the first major piece of work that showed us how we were overstepping our ecological footprint, um, You know how much resources the world uses and what is the capacity of the world to regenerate those resources. And in fact, I mean, it is scarily the, um, the global footprint uh, day by which the Earth overshot its resources this year was the 29th of July. And, you know, if you think about that, it's only seven months in, we have overshot all our resources globally. Mm. But Qatar overshot its resources by February the 9th. And so when we're looking at that, and the UK overshot its resources by May the 17th. And so we're talking about the fact that we are... We are absolutely trashing the planet with every single aspect of, of um, consumerism that we that we take forward. And Donella, in her first book, um, you know, the Limits to Growth, published in um, 1972, you know, she assumed, like like I did when I first became a politician, that if you give people the evidence, they'll understand it and they'll act on it. So she assumed. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we laugh at it now that this could even be a thing. But she assumed in the 1970s, give give governments evidence, and they would they would change their behaviour, and they didn't. No. But she had identified in the book that there were some other elements that kept coming up in her dialogue with people about change, and they were very much about um, you know visioning, um, networking, 
uh, truth-telling, must-tell truth to power, learning and loving. And she thought these five things were important, but she didn't know how important. When she put, uh, um, published the book um, Limits to Growth, the 30-year update in, in 2002, she said that those five things were more important mm. than the evidence. And it was the two together that would work. And mm. so it's, you know, you've got to have a vision thing. You've got to network. You've got to collaborate uh, with other people. You have to be prepared to tell truth to power. You've got to learn from each other and you've got to love. And for Donella, and I'm going to quote directly now, for, from, for Donella, the loving was the sustainability revolution will have to be, above all, a collective transformation that permits the best of human nature mm. rather than the worst to be expressed and nurtured. And what she describes uh, in saying that is, if you assume that the world for all practical purposes has no limits, then extractive industries extract and the human economy goes further beyond limits and the result is collapse. If the limits are real and there's not enough time, people cannot be moderate, responsible or compassionate in time. The model is self-fulfilling, the result is collapse. But if the limits are real and close, but there is no time to waste, there is just enough energy, enough material, enough money, enough environmental resilience and enough human virtue to bring about a planned reduction in the ecological footprint of humankind, that will give us a sustainability revolution to a much better world for the vast majority. Mm. So it's a revolution of the heart is what you're saying. Because, I mean, I, the other question I wanted to ask was, you know, how you get those policymakers to, to think, you know, and then act systemically. You know, I mean, you talk vividly about your own struggles, starting with learning to live differently. The, Wales's first sustainable development scheme way back in the late 90s, you know, which then evolved into One Wales, One Planet in the late noughties. And, you know, I mean, you describe how you would effectively win the argument and then little would change. And, you know, what, what were the, the main challenges you faced from the civil service in particular? And I'm, I'm not sure what the, the Welsh equivalent of Sir Humphreys is. I mean, it's Sir Hewell. Um, but, you know, what's the most stupid thing anyone's ever, ever said to you in the context of resisting or rejecting your work? <laughs> I think um, I think we can confidently say that the Welsh equivalent of Sir Humphrey is Sir Humphrey. Exactly. Because <laughs> the civil service is in England, uh, in England and Wales civil service ah. <laughs> and it does mean that sometimes people come to wales as a way of then uh, advancing their careers in in london um ah oh, what an interesting question the most stupid thing anybody's ever said to me well in many ways do you know the most stupid thing is when somebody says to me it can't be done <laughs> yeah. and then my hackles go up and i think i'll show you <laughs> and I smile and say, well, maybe not at the moment, but we'll find a way. Mm. And uh, and it just hardens my resolve. So all those people who said to me it can't be done, thinking that they could put a minister in her place and stop her thinking about it, were actually major contributors to why there is now a law that requires people to deliver. The public services in Wales have to deliver uh, well-being for future generations. Uh, they can't just talk about it. They can't just promote it. 
This uh, reminds me of that great Amelia Earhart quote, which is uh, never interrupt somebody doing something you said was impossible. And you, you, oh, you, you, oh, <laughs> I didn't that one. That's you're like the funny. Amelia Earhart of public legislation. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other thing that you reminded me of when you're talking about uh, Donella Mello's sort of, you know, we might just make it, it reminded me of another quote by um, Leonard Bernstein, who said, to achieve great things, two other things are needed, a plan and not quite enough time. And that may be the moment we're in at the moment. I think that is a superb quote. Yes, a plan and not quite enough time. And there is a plan and there is not quite enough time, but there is enough time to make a difference. And I think that's the other really important aspect to this is that you know the science has been telling us very clearly, particularly since Copenhagen, um, very, very clearly that this is the decade in which the action needs to be taken because of the cumulative effect of all the greenhouse gases that have gone before. And therefore, without if we don't take action in this decade, we effectively are cementing in, which I feel is a good word for this, mm. cementing in, concreting in a bad future mm. for, for um, young people now and future generations as yet unborn. And therefore, that will be a wake-up call. Um, and there, there is a great quote, and I've got no idea who said this one, is, you know, the, the best point to start was 20 years ago. Yeah. The second best time is now. Yes, that's... that's, uh, <laughs> that's talk, 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 <laughs> talking about wake-up calls, I'm very, I'm very conscious that John hasn't said anything. I'm just worried he may have fallen asleep. No, no, I'm here. I'm, <laughs> I'm really struck. Listening to it is fascinating, and I'm struck by the clash between... Because, you know, I, I keep saying I'm here as uh, the layman, and I'm not... I, I think you all have these conversations every day, and I don't necessarily. And what I'm struck by is a clash between almost us as individuals and people who share the planet waiting and depending on delegates to sit around a nice dinner and decide what is acceptable for the planet and us as individuals. And when when you talk about what you've done in terms of the plastic bag tax, that's that was such recent history. And yet even now you look back, it seems insane it took so long. We as individuals knew that was wrong. We could have stopped using plastic bags, but we sort of have this lag because we wait for politics to tell us what we can do as individuals. And I wanted to ask about your personal history and how frustrating you find that stepping out of your role as a politician as an individual who grew up in Africa and you talk about human virtue and needing to live sustainably and you've seen communities that will be the the hardest hit by climate change and the the path the planet is on now who are living sustainably because they don't have any choice but because it's the way they've always lived they don't waste things you must at sometimes talking about that lag and that you know how things take 50 years to even get on the agenda of a meeting in the House of Commons. And yet these communities are out there now. Why do you think we've got that discord between politics and what we as individuals have to do and what is perfectly common sense because we all share the planet? Whatever each of us has as as our background in terms of growing up, um, unless for some reason you have an extraordinary background, you just think yours is normal. I mean, it's, uh, yeah. you know, my, but I had a normal background in the sense of um, I grew, I, I, I grew up in, in what was Rhodesia. 
Um, at the time, my father was there because he um, developed a, the first multiracial medical school um, in Africa. Uh, my mother's a doctor too. She used to uh, go out into the bush. I mean, it's extraordinary when I think about her now, you know, going out into the bush on her own as a white doctor um, and, uh, and, and treated thousands and thousands, of, particularly of women with, with, with um, um, you know, family planning type complaints, etc. Um, and, you know, but, but that's the one I grew up in. So it was absolutely normal. And so it was absolutely normal for me to be cycling to school um, at the age of five or six uh, on empty roads. I mean, I remember we, we brought our cars from the UK uh, and they were RSD 146 and 147. That was the number of cars that were in the whole of Rhodesia at the time. <laughs> so the chances of one hitting me on the way to school <laughs> were pretty low. Um, and just the freedom. Um, growing up in this country where, you know, because a lot of it was still unbuilt of, of uh, what is now Harare, um, uh, I just had um, all these paths that people used to walk and cycle along. Um, and I just used to walk and cycle along them myself. And I, I was taught how to deal with snakes and I carried a stick on my bike. Um, and if I was going through a thicket, I'd get off my bike and I'd thump the ground beforehand so that anything in front might might move out of the way. And very occasionally, I came far too close to one. Um, I remember falling down a hole and meeting a cobra, and I don't think I've ever jumped so high and so fast getting out of it as I as possible. But sure, surely that would have prepared you for meeting Jacob Rees-Mogg in the house. <laughs> I've never met, and I'm quite happy of that situation. <laughs> um, but it's it was. You know, so my background was this immense freedom in nature in a beautiful country with an immense um, panoply of nature around me. But there are always worms in our Edens. And I, and the big worm for me was was this kind of like, well, why, why are the white people in control of this country? <laughs> just seemed to me astonishing. And then... And then just starting and to understand, you know, how laws were being used to keep the indigenous population in its place. And the laws were being used in such ways that, you know, one day I could literally have my, I mean, my, both my parents were doctors, so I had a, um, a nanny. And that, and, and that nanny was allowed to be with me everywhere. And then suddenly she wasn't because she was black and wasn't allowed into the playground. And these were really important factors in terms of inf influencing my life in terms of kind of anti-racism and equality. And I think what's, what's incredibly important in all of us is they, I mean, we've been doing a few quotes on this programme. So the Aristotle one about give me the child of seven and I'll give you the man. Mm -hmm. um, these early years are absolutely critical in the formation of who we are. And what we value, and of course, you know, this nurture is is it's nature and nurture in terms of of upbringing. But the kind of the environment we grow up in, the values we grow up in, all of these things. So you do see differences in generations, which mm -hmm. you know grow up in a real time of consumerism in the 1980s, where we had that whole notion about if you got on the bus, you were a failure, um, and then and then people who grow who, who've grown up 
uh, as millennials who are far more conscious about other people in the world, who are really interested in identity, who are really interested in care. You know, as a generation, we know the generation, um, the millennials at the moment, are absolutely behind government action on climate change. They were absolutely antagonistic in the context of Brexit. Mm-hmm. And yet the over 65 in the Conservative Party uh, are the ones who drive an agenda which does not allow sufficient action on climate and deprives that generation in the context of access of living, working and playing in, 20, in 28 countries. So you've got you know, a real dislocation in terms of age groups that um, as well, and I know that's gone way off topic in terms of what you were you were asking me, but I want to go back to that notion that often the seeds of who we are and who we become are laid very early on, mm. and I now feel extraordinarily privileged to have had an a, an upbringing that gave me the respect and love for the things that I still respect and love now, and I weep for the tragedy of them being lost. And I'm old enough to have seen some of the losses as well, because when we talk about species loss, we end up in this weird situation whereby you talk about species loss to an 11-year-old and they didn't know they were there anyway. (laughs) So they haven't lost them, but they've been lost in my lifetime. Mm, And I think those of us who, who, you know, who have that, Um, feeling of loss we need to translate that loss into action we need to say this is really really important and we need to fight to protect it this reminds me um i was talking to my my late great friend tony level who's a sustainable agriculture genius he said to me um how do you feel the person who cut down the last tree on easter island felt and i replied so i imagine they felt terrible he said nope grew up in a world mostly without trees didn't think about it and that really stuck with me and i think that's you know we've got a generational problem in that we're so disconnected from the natural world that we've uh, we've neglected it but i mean that's maybe one of the silver linings of covid is i think that people had have understood that if you carry on encroaching you know on biodiversity you're going to get more and more zoonotic viruses and that link i think has been quite well established so there is something of a silver lining there that we're beginning to see our relationship with that and actually it's going to impact very very badly on us I think that zoonotic point is important. I mean, I remember years ago going into the um, British Science Museum and they had uh, this globe um, suspended, um, uh, you know, in a room all of its own and it was lit up and, and you go in and you could use a computer to look at the spread of viruses across the world, uh, the spread of flooding across the world, uh, sea level rise, you know, it was, uh, and it was called science on a sphere. And I was just absolutely taken by it because what it showed is that all of these things, they know no territorial boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, well, they know territorial boundaries in the sense of whether or not they're in, um, you know, sort of uh, uh, valleys or uh, mountains or anything like that. But that, that that's what defines the spread. What you don't have is this notion of the boundaries of countries defining what you do. So this notion that we absolutely have to collaborate with each other to tackle the global problem is real. And although there still may be 
um, you know, laggards in terms of coming forward. The Qatars, uh, in fact, many of the Middle Eastern countries with their reliance on oil. Um, even, I mean, you've got the Scandinavian countries. Norway um, mm. is, is sort of standing out as a beacon of despondency at the moment. Um, but the, you know, we, we know also that if the most of the world gets behind it, pressure will be put on these countries in the future. So we always do have to go for the absolute best that we can achieve. Mm -hmm. If we can get 10 more countries to deliver on nationally determined contributions, if we can get 20 more countries to lift their nationally determined contributions, then actually we're on the way to something better. And if we use that ratcheting mechanism mm. so that every few years countries' performance uh, increases, and that's by international treaty now, then actually, you know, we can we can now put out a real beacon of hope for the world. Mm. I mean, in the one area I've been working in, which is sort of national security, I've been working on this uh, international peace and climate declaration, which looks like it's going to be signed next year by, you know, a good chunk of the world's military forces, where they're basically saying, you know, we agree that the biggest threat to our citizens is not each other, but climate change, and we're going to collaborate on that as military forces. And that, again, is another pressure that, you know, another win that, you know, it sort of starts to change the colour of the water in terms of how we think about the future and future generations. Oh, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I had a, I had my, my first um, physical gig uh, when we were kind of released uh, from Zoom um, in 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 July, um, was was actually to uh, host a meeting of uh, senior military commanders from all over the world uh, in outside the University of Wales Trinity St David. We, uh, so we had an outside meeting, and this was um, uh, in terms of the Royal Military College and a number of these uh, very, very important uh, military personnel had been trapped in the UK during COVID. Hmm. Um, and therefore, they were debating with each other uh, issues. And what was extraordinary for me, um, who's not moved in that world at all, was that, you know, when I asked them what they thought was the most critical issue facing them, without a hesitation, they said climate. Hmm. Because of all the consequences from climate. So all the consequences about migration, yeah. about unrest, around water, around food, around energy. And that's what's so hard um, in the context of why the world leaders don't understand that we make all of that easier by taking more action mm. now. Mm. And that every year we leave it, particularly in a capitalist economy, it becomes more expensive yeah. Not less expensive. You sort of alluded to, you know, if we can get 10 more countries to, to hit targets and things as the next step. And we always end on how we make things better, how we unf the situation, as it were. Is there anything more urgent, you think? Is there anything that you, you can point to that's happening now? Or do you think changing the situation is about being pragmatic and accepting that these things are going to move at the pace that they've moved so far and we just have to be realistic and put pressure on where we can? I think that we also do have a number of leaders across the world who really understand the need to take action. And we need every country to bring its last atom of leadership to the table. And you, I know it's a really, in some ways, it's a very odd comparison because when I introduced the, the carrier bag charge in, the, in, in, in Wales, 
I remember some, somebody saying to you, I hope you don't think your work is done because this is tiny. And I went, uh, no, 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 you're right. I absolutely don't think my work is done. But I said some actions are hugely symbolic mm. because they demonstrate a disruption in a system. They demonstrate an appetite for change by the public and they demonstrate a willingness to engage. And within four years, um, as John, you said, we had the, what we did in Wales then happened across the whole of the UK. But you'd never have heard outside Wales that actually it was Wales that started. So once you start on something which people, the public perceive, is really, really important um, and actually something they should have done long before, then actually governments can move at the speed of the people. And what we're doing is happening at the moment is there are a huge percentage of people in the UK who want the government to act on climate change. Government is not yet acting at the speed of the people. It will be able to go much further and faster knowing it has the support of the people of the UK behind it. And if other countries act similarly, then actually it will be the people of the world that help the governments move where we need them to go. And what's the next big thing from Wales then? The next big thing from Wales is going to be the first draft. It's going to sound ludicrously small compared to what I just said. <laughs> but Wales has already got very strong legislation in place about its climate activity, the Welsh Government, and it is publishing um, in three days' time its first draft of a plan in terms of how it delivers on that. And the really important change in this is rather than publishing a plan on which is done a limited consultation, the climate minister is very clear. It is the first draft of a plan that is now open to the people of Wales to amend, to help the government and the parliament achieve the objectives. So it's a new way of working and that new way of working delivers on the five key ways of working that are enshrined in law in the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act, mm. that all public services in Wales have to be preventative, must think long-term, must integrate the outcomes, uh, must collaborate with people in achieving those outcomes and must involve people about whom decisions are being made. So the Act is not only driving the goals which deliver on the sustainable development goals, but they're also driving these ways of working, which means that over time, public organisations in Wales will be very, very different because they have to deliver on the interests of both current mm. and future generations. Now, is there something is there something in here, Jane, about innate Welsh radicalism? Now, you know, as a sort of uh, alumni of uh, the University of Wales, Swansea, you know, I, I definitely attribute my rambling around doing marine biology on Gower beaches as part of my sort of, you know, epiphany and <laughs> transformation. Um, you, you know, and I'm going to embarrass myself for my terrible Welsh pronunciation here, but there's a lovely uh, Welsh expression, which is... Uh, 
Dodinol Latfengoid, which is basically to return to your senses, which literally translates as to return to my trees, um, which I think is a great way of sort of like regathering yourself. Um, but in a previous episode of the podcast, we interviewed Sanderson Jones on the future of religion, and he quoted um, someone saying that actually, you know, the whole birth of the labor movement owes as much to Welsh Methodism as it did to the sort of coal mines. Um, but, but the question I wanted to ask is, you know, there's great talk of translating the Welsh Act, you know, the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act into a UK Act. And I know Lord John Bird of Big Issue fame uh, mm. has been championing that. What's the status of taking that legislation to a national basis now? Well, I think what's really interesting about this is is the fact that other countries across the world are looking at it. Ireland is the latest. This week it says it wants to bring a Wellbeing of Future Generations Act to Ireland. Scotland announced it in its manifesto for this year's elections and has now allocated a green MSP in terms of the partnership with the SNP and government in Scotland uh, to oversee uh, their version of the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act. Um, countries such as New Zealand, states in Australia, provinces in Canada, Iceland are already looking at this. And there's a, um, a new coalition of governments called WeGo, uh, which is the, uh, the governments which are interested in wellbeing economics across the world. Um, and there is a slow and steady movement in the context of taking the legislation forward um, within uh, the Westminster Parliament. It's still being done through a private member's bill, which means it's not been adopted by government yet. But there is increasing interest in government. Um, and Lord John Bird was very clever before the last election in uh, asking uh, members of uh, Parliament and aspiring members of Parliament of all parties to sign a declaration that if they came into office, they would support Wellbeing of Future Generations Act. So you won't be surprised to find that one Boris Pfeffer Johnson signed <laughs> such a declaration. So we are waiting. We are waiting for the Prime Minister to deliver on his promise that there will be a Wellbeing of Future Generations Act in England. This reminds me of the great Victor Hugo quote, you know, it's, no, it's nothing so powerful as an, as, as an idea whose time has come. And it seems to me that, you know, you've been incredibly powerful in birthing that idea and making it a reality, um, which, you know, makes you possibly the midwife of the future. I don't know, Jane. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think the key thing, though, is is an idea whose time has come needs a lot of other agents. And... I mean, I left, as you just said at the beginning of the programme, I left the legislative bomb of moving from a um, legislative uh, duty to promote sustainable development to a legislative duty to deliver sustainable mm. development, i.e. the well-being of future generations. Um, and very much based on the Brundtland definition of sustainable development, which means that you, you, you're making sure that future generations have sufficient to meet their own needs. And I think what what has been very interesting in, in that midwife process is that actually the people that we all should be paying tribute to are all those parliamentarians in Wales of all political parties who did all the work through the committees, the stuff the public doesn't see, 
through the committees, interrogating the words of the legislation, hearing from civil society and others, the way civil society in Wales stepped up, the way barristers gave their time to help um, the Government of Wales understand that it could actually use the phrase about living within environmental limits in legislation. So there was an army of people who were um, emboldened by the opportunity who have then created something which won't be the same when it's transferred to other countries, um, but will be a way of other countries looking at their own culture at their own economy, at their own society, at their own environment, and fashioning a future that enables them to look future generations in the eyes with confidence. And the John Rawls quote mm. that influences me every single day of my life is, do unto future generations what you would have had past generations do unto you. In your um, lovely TED Talk, uh, you know, at, at Swansea, Jane, you talked, you quoted Satish, uh, the great Satish Kumar, about yeah. this idea of ecology before economy, yeah. you know, the ecos is home and ecology is home living and economy is home management. Uh, yeah. And that and that great line from Donella Meadows, you know, you may be able to fool the voters, but not the atmosphere, uh, which, you know, plays to so many of the things we say, you know, when I often quote Ayn Rand, because I always think it's good to throw a complete lunatic right wing um, libertarian thinker into the mix, which she said, you know, you can evade reality, but you can't evade the concept consequences of evading reality uh yeah. i mean do, do you think that idea that satish articulates you know so simply uh, and so beautifully can catch on that we have to put ecology before economy yeah you know you know what happens when you sort of get epiphany moments in your life and what i did in that um, tedx talk in swansea was really talk about the epiphany moments in my life mm. and, and and this one was a big one because we often don't think about the sources of words, yeah. but I'm an English yeah. teacher by profession, and I studied both English language and literature um, in university. So I couldn't believe when Satish told this story about the fact that um, the words ecology and economy come from the Greek word oikos, which means the planet home. And therefore, ecology is the knowledge of the planet home. And economy is the management of the planet home. So I kind of knew this in the sense of reading it, but I, I hadn't taken in the meaning of it. And so when Satish asks the question, <laughs> the question we all should be asking about how could we be in a situation where every single one of the UK universities teaches economics the management of the planet home, but hardly any teach ecology, mm. the knowledge of the planet home. How can we be in a situation where we teach the management of something about which we do not know? And that was a real epiphany moment for me. And it has also helped me feel um, that I can put nature first. So in my book, when I talk about, you know, the, the things that we must change and what we need in Wales in particular to do to uh, enable the Future Generations Act to really deliver on its potential. One of the big ones is nature has rights too. And that's really, really hard for a politician to say, um, because normally politicians are always thinking about people's rights, people's views, people's actions. 
But actually, we are part of nature and ecology should come first because we are part of ecology and yet we are predators as well. And we have to have to stop predating and start to understand that our economy is predicated on our ecology, the, manage, uh, the management of our planet successfully for current and future generations. And I think that, uh, you know, what we um, listen to in the context of Donella um, Meadows and that very, very important phrase, you know, you can fool the voters, but you can't fool the atmosphere. You know, we should hold that in our minds at all times because you can't. And therefore, however much Scott Morriston may stand up and bluster in Australia um, about the fact that they want to stay linked to King Coal, which influences every aspect of their political and economic system, while wildfires are killing his own citizens. And I cannot understand how countries will accept that when they know they can do something about it. That was superb. I'm really grateful for your time. Oh, thank you. So there we go. I hope you enjoyed that. That was a Another, I think, fascinating conversation with a wonderful guest. I'll put it to you too, because your your work is to engage with political thinkers about what will be I done. I think that's, that's an oxymoron, isn't it? Oh, <laughs> slam! Are you listening? You, you having that, um, Theresa May, and, and all your mates? Um, you deal with political people. Yes. Is that, am I allowed to say that? Yeah, we do. Um, no, we, we we do engage with politicians. Uh, indeed, indeed, Ed's been engaging with some in a little secret meeting. But we'll come on to that in a minute. All right, let's come on to it now. You can't tease that. You've been having secret meetings, have you, Ed? Oh yeah. So I've been hosting a secret meeting. This is like the Breton Woods of future environmentalism. Right. Didn't get the invite, Mark. Were you invited, Mark? <laughs> There's a reason for that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I wasn't invited because I believe there was a poetry reading halfway through. So, and no, it's not to invite me to that kind of stuff. But, um, but what I thought was interesting listening to Jane was she talks very much about you know how you get stuff into policy and how she's managed to do that and how difficult that is. And Ed, you were meeting today with with I think the leaders of the Green Party and Extinction Rebellion and a few other people. I guess you were talking about what's available from a policy perspective and how difficult it is, and and then maybe what's beyond that. Perhaps you could. Uh, Tease us a little with some of the uh, nuggets from your secret cabal. Tease me, tease me, tease me till I lose control. Oh, Academus <laughs> and pliers. I don't know whether that is the kind of um, sustainable, equitable, humane and just future that we're striving for, but hey, let's roll what? with it. Does anybody know why he was called pliers? I'm guessing it was either because he's a former handyman or something <laughs> horrific. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, Right, I'm going to Google. While you tell us who you've been meeting and why, I'm going to Google, why is pliers called pliers? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, nothing like the sublime to the ridiculous. Um, oh, and, no, and, we, and we've been having a pretty intense conversation around, I think the real crux of it was, you know, we still get very stuck in this idea of imagined salvation, you know, that we always have time we always have time to address these issues um and it doesn't matter where we we pick the moment you know and I, and I feel like i've been saying this for 20 years it doesn't matter how tight the timelines get you know we've always still got a bit of extra time and so there was a really big question around well what happens if we accepted the fact that actually you know 
one and a half degrees is incredibly difficult to achieve. And would that liberate us to think a bit more differently? And I mean, but apart from anything else, in answer to your legislative question, I think there's a sense that we're sort of at the end of the road for our existing approaches and tactics, strategies, and indeed some of our institutions. Now, it's not to say they can't be reborn and reinvented and refocused and regalvanized, but, um, you know, the, the way it's been going at the moment, we are sort of, we are definitely limping. And I, and I think if we were able to like honestly acknowledge that and say, look, you know, there isn't any intellectual honesty around the kind of, we still have time piece, you know, it might be theoretically possible, but probably politically and practically it's not. And so if you want to get beyond the fact that we might be sort of technically lying to folk, then, you know, we have to, we have we have to be much more frank about this, and I think that honesty gap is really important because you know we're we're being sold still some sort of techno utopian you know sunlit uplands um, without much credibility about how we might actually get there. Who are the we when you say we need to acknowledge that the the current system isn't working? Because the people that need to do that, by definition, are the people running the current system, and they are the people least likely to do that. Yeah, well, that's what my friend Kate Simpson always says, you know, who runs this organization called Wasafiri, who works on system change and conflict resolution in places like East Africa. You know, and she's, she always says, you know, when we, we always, it's very lazy to say the system is broken, the system is broken. And we often use that as a shorthand here. But the fact is, the system is working for someone or, mm-hmm. or some people. Uh, and that's why it carries on going. Um, and the challenge is, is not to be sort of reductionist and say, well, you know, the system's all broken. It's totally dysfunctional, but it's working for some, mm. you know, it really is working for some. And that's, that's the issue. And so you, it's not enough to just, you know, do more good things. We've got to really stop doing the bad things. And I think that's the crux of the disappointment that comes out of COP. I mean, we, at COP26, we only literally got to the point where we finally got a kind of an admission on COP26, that fossil fuels drive climate change. I mean, like, how did we not come to that conclusion for the previous 25 COPs? And, you know, and that's down to vested interests and the fact that the system is working for those players. And, you know, that, that stuff's really tough. So, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a really amazing meeting um, and some incredibly honest and quite moving sort of testimonies from people who've been doing this stuff, you know, for even longer than Mark and I, you know, people with 30 or even 40 years experience who have been there right since those early sort of green awakenings and stirrings in the, in the eighties. And so, you know, they, they've got a helicopter view. They've seen this stuff play out for so long. Um, and it's not that they're running out of patience, but it's just like, when do we allow ourselves to admit that something radically different has to shift? And, and I think there was a general sense that that's now. Mm, but I think I think that ties into quite a lot what's happened on this series. If you look at like our conversations with Sanderson about religion or yeah. uh, James Plunkett about governance, you know, uh, there's very much that feeling at the moment that we're in this birthing period for something quite radical to emerge. And and, and uh, was it was it Jonathan Porritt used to say to you, you know, you, you can never see a paradigm shift when you're in the middle of one. No, exactly. Well, it's John Elkington who said that. But I mean, I, th- I you know, I, th- I think the point that we're, people were making was like, you know. One and a half degrees is, you know, m- most people don't understand the science. So one and a half degrees is a thing that they hear and they sort of emotionally connect to as, as some kind of defense that, that tells them that we're still potentially on the right track. And, you know, it's interesting that, you know, politicians rarely actually talk about carbon budgets because probably there's some pretty robust science in carbon budgets and they never want to actually be held to them. 
because that would make them directly accountable and responsible for delivering on all of these well-intentioned but rather airy pledges which don't necessarily translate into firm and concrete commitments. I get a sense with the sort of 1.5 degree thing that especially now we are not only being told the 1.5 we're also now able to fairly quickly get a figure of and this is where we're at now it's become a sort of running tally like we need 1.5 and we were at 3.2 and after cop it's now uh, about 2.4 you know it it's sort of it creates the impression that it, it's just being done and for yeah. most of us we've just got to wait until it's either 1.5 or 1.7 and we don't really have to do anything or change anything because well i'll just watch these numbers these numbers seem to be ticking towards where they need to be so it, i guess it's being done mm, i mean that's that 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 2.4 for instance is only if everybody does everything they promise to do yeah <laughs> so yeah that's not gonna that's not gonna happen and by the way we have to be you know straight here 1.5 is not good no 1.5 is not safe 1.9 1.5 is grim we're at 1.1 now we had a canadian um green mp like um dial in for a kind of session at five o'clock this afternoon you know and she's based in vancouver you know and not only have they had the heat dome this summer where it hit 50 degrees you know and her, her niece actually ended up in hospital with a brain edema um you know because of overheating uh, and then literally vancouver island the city of vancouver has been cut off because torrential rain washed away all the bridges and catastrophic mudslides you know and she said suddenly you know that visceral climate change piece this is at 1.1 degrees mm. you know she said it you know it's now front and center in canada because they're like this is not supposed to happen mm. But then again, you know, this is this is where uh, I mean, Jane was saying in her interview, you know, that, that 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 when it becomes very very present, suddenly you start to see the big levers and the big money and all all that movement. We're certainly seeing that in our work, you know. I think you know, which is nice, but it's just it's just twenty thirty years too late. So so hopefully we will see some radical action, but we're going to still end up living in a very changed world, even if we get that radical action. Yeah, and I think I mean the other point we're making is like. You know, there's a real risk of demonizing, you know, some of the institutions as well. You know, we probably need some kind of redemption of politicians through holding them to account because the last thing we want is everyone being criticized to kingdom come, even though that might be justified in some senses, and turning everyone off the politicians because that actually opens the door to eco-fascism and authoritarianism mm. where you know the situation becomes described as being so bad that governments are justified in doing anything and everything they can to mitigate and ameliorate it and that is scary because that's where strong arm populism shutting the borders we're all right jack you know keep all the refugees out that you know you, you can hear the kind of the drumbeat of that in the background what we need from this generation then is, is people who are honest about what they're going to do and then actually do it um, yeah. And I don't want to put myself forward to that guy, but I told you I was going to find out why he was called Players, and I've done it. Um, <laughs> well, I'm not saying I can solve climate change. All but right, drum roll, please. Why is he Why is he called Players? Players began his career performing under the name Blues Melody, but acquired his more famous moniker due to an apparent similarity to fellow singer Pinchers. Um, so I guess it's sort of funny reference to... Um, I'm supposed to be like Pinchers, so I'm going to call myself Player. But, yeah, but now all you just want to know is why is he called Pinchers? Off oh. you go. <laughs> oh, I've just, I've just shut down Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> now, we've been discussing future generations, and we will be back next week with another episode. But all through this episode, I've been thinking of Luke, uh, who emailed this week to say, I'm enjoying the latest season 
he says. I assume he means the podcast, not the actual season, which, let's be honest, has been hit and miss uh, storm-wise. He said, lots of thought-provoking topics as usual. I thought you might like to know. I've got into the habit of listening to your podcast each time it comes out while cleaning my toddler's reusable nappies. Nice. It feels the perfect companion to what is literally a shitty task over a <laughs> toilet bowl. My motivation does wane from time to time. What's the point and all? But by the end of the podcast, I usually feel a bit better about my decision to go on for the good of the planet. And I realize we've never asked what people do when they listen to this podcast. And it's a fascinating topic because a lot of them are sort of commute podcasts. And I, I like the idea that Luke knows, right, this is to, to reuse these shitty nappies. I have to really have faith in the future of the planet. And so I need a podcast that goes with it. It's much more of a sort of wine pairing uh, view of listening to a podcast <laughs> that he's doing a shitty task and he's using us as inspiration you might do the opposite you might be thinking and and the reason i put it when we usually do the confessional you might have something that you do that you know is bad for the planet and to balance that out you think well while i'm just burning diesel for laughs in my back garden i'll listen to this podcast because it feels like oh if there's good people doing good things i'm less of a turd for doing what i'm doing so i'd love you to send in hello at john on the future notes.com you can find us on twitter at j and the f what you do when you listen to this podcast because i think it'll give us a genuine sort of insight into who we're reaching and where i hope no one makes love whilst listening to this podcast <laughs> it would only be as an aid to make it last longer, surely. <laughs> Some poor bastards have been there months. So send us in what you're doing when you listen to the podcast. Also, keep in your trivial questions from Mark and Ed to lighten the mood when we're having a serious chat. Uh, and you can also, there's not a lot of confessions coming in. And either that means we have a wonderful set of listeners who never do anything wrong, or people are keeping their secrets secret. Um, well, but... you can see why, can't you? Because remember, Padre what we did Pete, to Pete. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I thought it was a confession. It turned out that all my mates were listening and I got absolutely shit shit. <laughs> well, no, I mean, send, send them in anonymously. <laughs> yeah, change the name and the town if you're going to listen. Um, do you know what is worse? Pete from Bristol may not have been Pete from Bristol. He may have been Steve from Newcastle. And some bastard called Pete from Bristol has absolutely got it in the neck. So if you're going to change the name, change the name and the place to something absolutely ludicrous so yeah. you don't incriminate like, someone uh, else. Like, like Mark from New Cross. Yeah, or Ed from <laughs> Norfolk. I was just about to do that. Or <laughs> Great minds. <laughs> or John from yeah. Lancaster. I was going to do that gag, but as you know, I failed to remember who either of you are and quite what we're doing here. Um, join us next week for episode 17, uh, <laughs> the future of uh, the Uniball Roller Pen. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. Mark and Ed, thank you kindly. Always a pleasure. Have a wonderful week. See you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.